The text for the sermon this afternoon comes from Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at one verse, uh, Acts 9 verse 31. Um, I want to read uh, a little, a few verses before that. Uh, we'll start reading in, in Acts 9 uh, chapter, I mean, it's Acts 9 verse 20. Uh, the context to this is Saul has been on the way, on the road to Damascus. Um, the Lord meets him there and confronts him with his sin. And uh, he commands him to go to, to Damascus. And there Ananias meets him. And Saul is baptized and confesses faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, read in verse 19. Um, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with his disciples at Damascus. Now we're told in Galatians that uh, uh, Paul spends some time in Arabia as well. So he's in Damascus, he's saved. Then after verse 19, then he he's likely goes to Arabia for some period of time. Sometimes we think it's, it's three years, but Paul doesn't say he was in Arabia for three years. He says he was in Arabia and Damascus for a period of three years before he went to Jerusalem. So um, verse 20 is likely after uh, Saul is back from Arabia, and that's when he begins his, his public ministry. So let's hear God's word as we find it in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem, and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. And the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. As was stated at the annual congregational meeting, the session overseeing this church plant decided to encourage the congregation to focus on evangelism this new year. Being a relatively new church plant, we have a privileged opportunity to seek to advance the kingdom of God through the witness of the gospel to the lost. As we seek to advance the cause of Christ in Oklahoma City, our text this afternoon from Acts 9.31 provides us with some insight into some of the marks of a multiplying church. As we consider these marks, we need to uh, guard against the mentality that if we do A, well then when B will naturally result. Our concern as a church should not necessarily be on results, but on, on being faithful to what God has commanded us in his word. 
Many churches have ceased to be salt and light in the world because they've focused on pragmatism. They have abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ in pursuit of, of mere numbers, in pursuit of, of what works. And this has led to churches that are no longer churches, but rather more operate like social clubs, uh, spiritual organizations that are, are more interested in making life comfortable than in saving souls. But as we consider Acts 9.31, we must also recognize that this is a particular context through which God was pleased to grow the church. You'll note that there was peace in the church at this time, and that the church was edified. You'll note that the Lord is still pleased to grow the church when there are varying degrees of both peace and edification in the church. God does not need uh, there for there to be peace for the church to grow. And we've seen this as we've worked through Acts. You know, the, we saw how the, the persecuted church was actually growing because it was, it was causing those who were persecuted to go out into other parts of the globe and, and they would bring the witness of Jesus Christ to various cities. Churches can even grow when there are varying degrees of edification. But the church will not grow when the people do not walk in the fear of the Lord and when they do not walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit are two essential marks for church growth. And so with that, let us consider the marks of a multiplying church. In our text, Luke tells us that after Saul's, con- Saul's conversion, the church experienced a period of peace. We read that the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. What is rather ironic here is that the church did not experience peace prior to Saul's conversion. And it didn't experience peace immediately after his conversion either. It didn't experience peace prior to Saul's conversion because Saul was persecuting that church furiously. But for several years after his conversion, they did not know peace either because of Saul's bold witness of the gospel. Saul confounded the Jews with his zeal in proclaiming Christ. And suddenly he had become the the strongest uh, opponent to Judaism. And and the the Jews uh, very zealously and and ardently uh, opposed him. We, We see that Saul had to flee both Damascus and Jerusalem because of of the animosity that he had, that the Jews had for him. But once Saul went down to Tarsus, his hometown, the church in in Galilee, Samaria, and Judea had peace. Now, the the peace spoken of here is a peace from external attacks. This type of peace is a great blessing from God, as it is something that is often unusual in the life of the church. After all, the church in this world is the church militant. It is the church engaged in regular warfare, battling for truth and the glory of God. It's the church besieged by the world. The Lord in his grace and mercy provided a brief period of peace and safety for the church from the attacks of the enemy. And this stay in the attack was a result of the kingship of Christ. Christ is the king and the head of the church, defends and preserves her from all his and her enemies. Peace comes to the church from the Prince of Peace who wages war courageously for his bride. 
And we must also see that peace must come for the right reasons. There, there are many churches who have experienced peace from this world because they have looked just like the world, or they've capitulated on many issues with the world. This is not a peace the Lord grants. Instead, this is a peace that is the result of sin. It's a result of faithlessness. What do, what do we see so often in the Old Testament? The more Israel starts looking like the world, the more they, they lose their distinct distinctiveness, and they start looking like the world, and that's when nations start coming in and, and attacking them more severely. But when there is peace in the church for the right reasons, the church should rejoice and be thankful to God. It's a sad thing when there are churches who are not thankful for peace. Instead, they're constantly looking for the next conflict, the next war to fight. If we're preaching from churches that call for members of the church to pray for persecution to fall upon them. Those who called for such prayers often have not experienced intense persecution themselves and, and don't, in a sense, realize what they're asking. Nowhere in Scripture do we, do we read that we are to pray for persecution. We are instead commanded to pray, as in Psalm 122, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He should be sought in the church, and it is a blessing when it is experienced both inside and outside the church. And periods of peace for the church ought to be used well for the strengthening and edifying of the church. It can be a temptation in, in times of peace and prosperity to become lazy and apathetic. This was certainly the temptation of the, uh, for the church in Laodicea, as we find in, in Revelation they had experienced peace. They were rich and wealthy. They had no need of anything, yet they were lukewarm in their love towards God. And so Christ told them in Revelation 3, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That could be a way we could describe much of the church in the United States, sadly. The church in the United States is the most wealthy and affluent group of believers the world has ever known, yet far too often there is a, 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 a love of possessions over a love for God. Rather than being a fear of God, there is often greater fear of, of losing our comfortable lives. We must be sure that the peace we are experiencing now must be sure that we are using that peace well. And so we must be on guard during times of peace. We should not become complacent. Instead, we should be using peace for growth and maturity. We ought to remember now our Creator in the days of our youth, as we saw from our study in Ecclesiastes 12 on Wednesday. We need to remember our Creator in the days of our youth before the difficult days come. We ought to remember God in this time and grow in faith and obedience to God in this time. Even during the, the Pax Romana, a period of about 200 years of, of relative peace in the Roman Empire, there was still the need for the empire to go and fight wars. needed to be sure that it was using its peace well to, to defend its empire. 
church, even in times of peace, is still called the church militant. We must not make the mistake that somehow we have become the church triumphant in this world. And we know that the, the saints in the early church used their peace well, for we read in our text that they were edified. We read in the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. Many churches pursue peace at all costs. Oftentimes this leads to a neglect of the, of the, of the truth. Uh, doctrine is done away with. Doctrine is despised because it divides. Instead, there's a, a watered-down Christianity that has lost all souls and is little more than a, a placating of sinful consci- consciences by statements of affirmation. Rather than proclaiming the gospel, the pastor says, well, you're, you're really not that bad of a person. You're, you're pretty decent. God wants the best for you. And God will give you whatever you desire. Pursuing peace at all costs. The pursuing peace at the expense of edification, at the expense of growing in the knowledge of, of God's word. But peace must be joined together with purity. Both the peace and the purity of the church should be pursued. Yet the danger often for us is that uh, we, we assume a, a pure church automatically happens. Sometimes we can even uh, assume that oh, as soon as I join this church, all of a sudden it's, it's, it's going to be pure and it's going to uh, level up in a sense in its, its holiness. And the purity of the church must be sought even as our own personal sanctification is sought. It is attained with much difficulty and prayer. In our lives, we, we grow in sanctification bit by bit. much as we would like to be perfectly sanctified, it simply does not happen. Sanctification takes a lot of hard work. It involves prayer and fasting. It involves coming before the Lord and confessing our sins. It involves the hard work of repentance, of, of putting off of our sin and putting on the righteousness of Christ. It involves frustrations and disappointments. It involves tears and sweat. It involves uh, us being challenged and even us being uncomfortable. And it's much the same thing with the edification of the church. An edified church is a church that's laboring diligently to grow. And the word edified in our text really uh, implies this. The, the word in the Greek is the combination of two words. It's a combination of the word house and of the word roof. And those two words are put together to emphasize that edification is really being built up. Like workers are going to go and put a roof on, on top of the walls of a house, and eventually you're going to get, get this house. Uh, to be edified means that you're building upon something. You're, you're building up. And we as a church are to be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are to be built upon the foundation of, of both the Old and the New Testaments. So an edified church, a church that is being edified, is like a house that is being renovated. It's a renovation that's constant and, and will persist till Christ comes again. Oh, being, being a homeowner now, I have I, quickly learning that there's always something new to work on in the house. There's uh, just a growing list of things that need to be developed. And I need to set an order of priority. Okay, what needs to be dealt with? What needs, what needs to be dealt with immediately? 
And as we look at our need as a church to be edified, we, we need to look at it in the same light. What do I need to work on? What's absolutely pressing for me to work on as a believer, both in my life and in the life of the church? So are you seeking by the grace of God to build up the church? Are you seeking this, being mindful and diligent with your own personal sanctification, seeing that as one of the means that the church can be built up, looking at your own personal sins and seeking to reform your own life? You might bear witness to the world. Seeking a greater love and fear for God and a greater knowledge of the Holy Spirit is a great way for you to be built up in your faith and to build up the church. And this leads us to consider a God-fearing church. The Lord added blessing upon blessing to the early church in our text. Not only did it, it know peace and edification, but it also multiplied. The church grew not just spiritually, but also numerically. And we are told the reason for this is because they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. As we see to grow as a church here in Oklahoma City, we must be sure we are walking in the fear of the Lord. A church that walks in the fear of the Lord will be a distinct church. Not many churches walk in the fear of the Lord. Not something that's emphasized, not something that's uh, taught. Now, many of you have, have likely been told that, well, the fear of the Lord is, is not to be scared of God, like we might be terrified of a man who's, who's angry and violent towards us. Well, well that's correct. The fear of the Lord is, is, is not to be terrified that God might strike us down at any moment. Instead, the fear of the Lord for us as believers is an attitude of reverence for God. It is an attitude of, of submission and humility before him. This fear is, is, is distinct from much of what passes for the worship of God today. Worship is often casual, as, as casual as going to a coffee shop and catching up with, with some buddies. People going in and out of worship. People, uh, worship is something that's, that's, that's very comfortable. Yet this type of attitude does not capture what Scripture says about the fear of the Lord. In Psalm 2.11, we read that we are to serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Well, those who are saved ought not to be terrified of God. But there always ought to remain a deep reverence for who God is. There is an aspect of our worship that should be somewhat unnerving and uncomfortable for us because of, of the majesty of God, because of, of God's holiness, his transcendent nature. And that should drive us, so as we consider who God is, it should drive us, not, not to being scared of God, but it should drive us to worship him as someone who is completely other than us, someone who alone is, is worthy of worship. And this drives home the reality that the fear of the Lord comes. It's not just a, 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 an affection, it's not just an attitude, but it also comes from a, a right knowledge of God. Fear of the Lord is intimately connected with knowledge. It's a knowledge that God is indeed the thrice holy God, perfect and just. That he sits in splendid, majestic sovereignty, ruling over all things. The fear of the Lord is also 
knowing that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And it is the love of God, as much as the justice of God, that should drive us to an awe-filled reverence for him. An awe-filled reverence. And an awe-filled reverence will not simply affect our, our corporate worship as we gather together on Sunday, gather together for our worship services, but an awe-filled reverence will affect our entire lives as we live in light of, of knowing who God is and being reminded day in and day out that our God is a God who is perfect and just, or that he is a God who is loving and merciful towards us. And like I said, this is something that should fill our entire lives, not just as we, we come through those, those red chapel doors on Sunday. And we note that in our text, the people are, are walking in the fear of the Lord. This is something they're doing day by day. It's something that characterizes them. It is who they are. They were known. These are the God-fearers. These are those who, who, who have an understanding of who God is. This fear was an attitude and a knowledge that encompassed their entire life. So I ask, do you know this fear of the Lord? Does this characterize your spiritual walk with God? It's vital for your spiritual life that you know this. Because the fear of the Lord is, is something that is foundational in the life of the believer. Both Job and Solomon declare that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon would also declare that uh, it is the beginning of knowledge. If you desire wisdom, if you desire knowledge, you must have the fear of the Lord. If you are to live rightly in this world, you must have a fear of the Lord. And it's this fear of the Lord that, that promotes holy living. Proverbs 8, 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Psalm 111, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. And this is something we see in Ecclesiastes as well. In Ecclesiastes 12, uh, verses, verse 13, Solomon there puts the fear of the Lord together with keeping God's commandments. Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's own. And if you look at the references to, to the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament, almost always it's connected with living, with a keeping of God's law. These two things are brought together. And so we see that the fear of the Lord is not just uh, uh, an attitude of, of submission. It's not just a, a, a reverence. It's not just a knowledge, but it also flows down into a, a, a lifestyle, a, a type of piety. And so if you are to be saved, you must have the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord, as I've said, is not simply an attitude of reverence. There are those who, who can come into a church building very reverential. They, they, they take their hat off and as, as soon as they come through the doors. There's just this attitude of reverence. They're, they're in awe with, with the church building. And yet such a person is not necessarily saved because of that attitude of reverence. Nor is the fear of the Lord simply knowledge. Many people know many facts about God. 
They've read all the the big, thick, systematic theology books. They they can get into all sorts of debates over theology. Yet that doesn't necessarily mean they're saved either. And nor is the fear of the Lord simply holy living, a keeping of the commandments. Some of the most outwardly moral people are not saved. Your ability to keep the commandments of God will not save you. It is only the fear of the Lord that will save you because the fear of the Lord is really faith in God. It's understanding all these things about who God is. It's a, it's a word, the fear of the Lord is a word that encompasses the affections, cognition, and volition. The fear of the Lord is believing that God has saved you from all your sins and living in light of the redemption you have in Christ it's an understanding of the gospel and a living out of the gospel in day-to-day life. In Psalm 38, verse 8 through 9, there's a close coupling of, of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good with the fear of the Lord. We read there, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. Those who truly fear the Lord have an understanding of, of the love and kindness of the Lord to them. They have, they have tasted and seen of his goodness. And they want to live in light of that. Fear of the Lord. The true fear of the Lord is directly related to experiential knowledge of salvation. It's a knowledge of what God has done for you. It's a knowledge that you have been saved from your sins. It's a knowledge that drives you to worship and praise of God and thanksgiving. It is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, that he alone is worthy of praise. And thus we see why a church must fear God if it is to grow. Walking in the fear of God, the Lord, is, is walking in living faith towards God. Apart from the fear of the Lord, church buildings will be filled with dead souls. So, must pray and, and seek the Lord that we would grow in this fear of Him. That we would grow in our faith. That we would put off and put on. That we would be built up in the precious faith. So let us use these times of peace for the church to build ourselves up in faith. And let us do this boldly and courageously. And sometimes as we, as we look at, at our need for sanctification, we can despair. Because we, we just see sin after sin after sin. And sometimes as we look at the state of the church today, we can be uh, led to despair and wonder, what, Lord, what are you doing with your church? What are you doing with me? I want to grow in sanctification. I want to grow in, in, in your fear. I want to grow in, in obedience to you. We are to grow in the fear boldly and courageously. And we should not despair of the difficulty of this ta- task. Instead, we should know that we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit 
See, the church did not, the early church did not simply walk in the fear of the Lord. They also walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it is this walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit that, that differentiates every religion from Christianity. Many people talk about how, oh, I'm a, I'm a person of faith. And by that, they might mean a whole, whole host of, of things. It might mean that they believe there is, is a God out there, some God out there. He's not unnamed. The God could be the universe. It could be, it, it could be Allah. It could be uh, some nebulous figment of their imaginations. The Christians do not simply walk in faith. They walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who has first given them faith. And he is the one who sustains them in their faith. We in the Westminster Shorter Chasm, I always have appreciated how justification and sanctification are distinguished. Sanctification is that work of God in our lives. We should not despair at the task before us because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is with us. There's no other religion in the world that teaches this. God has not simply created us. God has not simply saved us, but God goes with his people each and every day by dwelling in them, comforting them, and guiding them into all truth. Their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit such that where a believer is, their God is with them. What we find here in Acts 9.31 is, is a fulfillment of John 14, 16. In John 14, 16, you will recall that Jesus told his disciples, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Although Christ has left this earth and ascended up into heaven, that was needful for us that he, he leave us. And he has given us the gift of his spirit. It was needful for Christ to leave us that he might give us his spirit and his, his spirit could be with us wherever we might go. And his spirit would, would be a helper for us. The word for helper in John fourteen sixteen is the same word that we find in our text. Helper is comfort. For the Holy Spirit to be our helper and comfort is for him to be the one who, who comes alongside us. And what a comforting reality for a church that had just come out of persecution. The helper had been with them in times of persecution. And he had remained by their side in times of peace. And he it was who led them in the fear of the Lord. He it was who caused the church to experience peace. He it was who, who caused the church to be edified. It was his operation in the hearts of image bearers of God that caused the church to multiply and grow. It had all been a work of his spirits. We know that the church not builds her up herself. Consider the passive verb in our text. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. The text does not say they multiplied themselves. No, the church, the growth of the church was a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't something they did by, by their own might or power, by their own eloquence. It was something that was done by the power of God. As you consider that the church grows supernaturally, 
Does that demonstrate itself in your words and actions? When it comes to growing churches and desiring that the church would grow, it can be very easy to forget that this growth of the church is indeed a supernatural work. We like to often think that, well, the church grows because I've, I, I, I'm eloquent. I know all the arguments. I, I've, I've convinced somebody about the truth. Or we like to think, well, I've done enough good things for this person. You know, surely they're going to come to church with me and uh, uh, they're going to do something. The growth of the church is always a work of God. It is a work of God in which God is pleased, certainly, to use means. We, we don't want to ignore the fact that God uses means. He does use the means of people walking in the fear of his name. He uses the means of people showing forth the love of Christ to, those, to all those who are image bearers of God. He uses the means of evangelism, whether that's having somebody over for a meal or witnessing out on the streets or, or however that might look like. The Lord uses means, but those means never apart from the operation of the Holy Spirit. And this should give us great encouragement. We are not alone in this task, but the Spirit who goes with us. And we walk in the comfort and the help of the Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, regardless of whether we are in times of, of peace or war, Let's walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And regardless of what the outcome is in doing that, we will be progressing. Walking is, is something which always propels us forward to a destination. It is something that, that builds us up and faithful to God's calling to our lives. Let us pray and hope and believe that he will bring honor and glory to his name by multiplying the church for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you. Lord, the work you have called us to in this world is often a, a difficult work. It's a hard work. It's, it's uh, a work that challenges us. But Lord, we pray that we would never be discouraged in this. But Lord, we pray that we would walk evermore in the fear of you. That we would understand more and more what that means in day-to-day life. And Lord, that we wouldn't just understand it, but we would live it out. And Lord, that we might be encouraged that you go with your people, that you do not leave them to figure this out on their own, but you have indeed sent a comfort and a helper to us, one who comes alongside of us to urge us on, to spur us on to faith and obedience to you. Lord, we pray that your Spirit Never leave us nor forsake us, but ever guide us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name.